simply says, return, repent, and restoration will come. Because Christ paid the price and the Messiah is here. And whatever mess that you've made, the Messiah can come into. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Tonight, we are starting a brand new study through the Minor Prophets, hence the title, Minor Leads. Uh, so we're going to do, don't get too excited. Um, yeah, that's usually the reaction you get when someone says, we're going to start the Minor Prophets. Crickets. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's pray and then um, let's pray and then we'll get into uh, our study tonight. We're going to be in the book of Hosea. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Hosea. Not to be confused with Hosbea. <laughs> A and B. Just kidding. Hosea. It is right after the book of Daniel. It's probably in that crinkly section of your Bible, right? The pages that don't get turned very much. If your Bible's anything like mine, <laughs> like, yay, Hosea. But let me explain. We're going to explain what we're, how we're going to be going through these. But let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, a time where we can, again, come to your word and hear from you and we thank you for the work that you did in our lives last year as a result of, of diligently coming to you and coming to your word and, um, and, and continuing to be filled with your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that this year would be no different uh, in that sense. Uh, God, just we keep coming to you because that's what we need is, is more of Jesus in our life. And, and Lord, we pray that you would speak to us powerfully through these books. Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit does not waste words. And so these are here for our admonition. They're, they're here for um, the building up of the believer, the building up of the church. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us all the things that you would have for us in your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I was saying, if, if there was ever a place in your Bible where the pages have that cringle new sound with only a few highlights and markings, it's, pri- it's probably the Minor Prophets. Or, or books of the Bible that we are just unfamiliar with, it's, it's probably these. Where someone would be like, hey, I was reading in the book of Amos the other day, and they're like, yeah, right, <laughs> you are not. Who does that? Um, or Zephaniah, my favorite was when the high school girls would come when I was the high school pastor, they would always come like, I was reading in Zephaniah. I'm like, no, you weren't. Like, no one just does that. If you were, like, praise God. But I, I really doubt it. But anyway, if you're like me, these were books that often I read and was like, what in the world? Number one, why? And these are talking about Israel. These are heavy books that speak specifically to a group of people. But they aren't distant in the sense that we can't learn something from them, right? The, the word of God is the word of God. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, including these books. But like the Arctic or the deep jungles of the Amazon, this is an unexplored frontier. We're going to look at it that way. So it's exciting. It's exciting to come to a book that maybe we're not familiar with 
and to, again, begin to see Christ, hopefully, shine through it. Uh, this will not be like our usual study through a book of the Bible, where we pick the book of 1 Corinthians and we spend the next year going through the book of 1 Corinthians, or months, probably years. So, so it won't be like that. What we're going to do is we want to look at major themes and major applications from these books. So we will be covering a book a week. So tonight we're going to study the whole book of Hosea, all 14 chapters. Not verse by verse or chapter by chapter, although we will highlight different verses, but we're going to fly over it in a sense and begin to draw out the main points, the major themes, and the major applications that come from it, okay? So don't freak out. We won't be here till midnight. If you do have to get up and leave, hey, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It won't hurt my feelings that bad. So, so as we study these, that's kind of kind of how we're going to come at it. It's going to be a little different than maybe we're used to. I know it's different for me. Um, this is not what I'm used to. I'm used to, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I'm more comfortable in that. But, um, hey, new year, new me or something like that. That's what I hear. So we're going to try something a little different. But the Minor Prophets is made up the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and they are the completion of the Hebrew Scriptures. Does anyone know why they're the completion of the Hebrew Scriptures? Because the New Testament was written in what language? Greek, Greek very good, and some Aramaic and things like that. Yeah, so you're good, right on. That's why they're the completion of the Hebrew, Hebrew Scriptures, because they're written in? hey oh, we're learning some stuff. So, Within those books and within these scriptures, they represent a look back and a look forward. As we will see from our study, we will be looking at Israel's history, but also it points us to its future, specifically Israel's future, as well as our own future, as we will see Christ prophesied coming. And that's why we're looking at the mess that is the minor prophets. It is a mess. In this time in the history of of Israel, These books take place within the years of 800 and 400 B.C., and these years were the worst years theologically for the nation of Israel. And what I mean theologically, meaning the knowledge of God, the closeness to God, the walk with God. Theologically, they were so far off in such a disaster and mess, but within each book, it is prophesied that um, restoration will come through the Messiah. Like, he is coming. There is this momentum within these books that if we will return to the Lord, there's cyclical themes within it, that if you will return to Moses, if you will repent of your sin, restoration will come. That is the constant theme through the minor prophets. And these books take place in those years. There's great depravity, and God is going to go to great lengths to show them their mess and their depravity. And the minor prophets all have that cyclical theme, like I said. But every book will come to what seems like a hopeless point. That's why we want to cover them quickly. <laughs> we don't want to leave you in the hopelessness of like, it's all going to burn. Israel's never going to turn back. It's over. Like, forget it. Maybe. I, mm. We're not going to leave you there. We want to cover these quickly. Because within that, when you read it that way, Man, it's such a beautiful thing to read an entire you know, letter or an entire book at once. You get the full sense of it from front to back, right? Um, a friend of mine are doing this read the Bible in 30 days thing. 
and I'm not succeeding in any way, but I'm trying. And, and um, today was like the whole book of Joshua and then some, and uh, I just didn't do it. But, but here's the thing, okay? <laughs> Jesus still loves me, and I will get there. But what's really cool when you read the Bible like that, and I've never done this before, and so when you read the Bible like that, what you're forced to do is see major themes within it. What you really see is how jacked up human beings have been since the beginning of human beings. And what you, you really see is the love of God for human beings and the, and the grace of God for his people. Like insane. You see it over and over and over again. Those are the, the major, some of the major themes. So um, when we come to these books, that's what we want to see. Not just a hopelessness, but all of them will end with these themes of restoration and renewal that is coming. So the book of Hosea. Let us read the first verse. It says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Ahaziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. You know it's going to be a great book. When you read the word harlotry that many times in the opening sentences. If you are reading a King James version, I am sorry. It says, here you go. You're like, what is your, don't say it out loud. But it, it is, it's talking about prostitution. Like it's, it's that kind of book. It is a serious and gnarly situation. This book is written in 70 or 770 BC around the time of the exiles of the children of Israel. And God is furious. God is furious. Imagine for a minute, like just the fury of God. We have, I think we forget that God does get mad. Um, just like my kids sometimes forget that dad, dad can get mad. And they're like, oh my gosh. And um, clean pair of shorts, you know, kind of a thing. Where, where um, the same thing happens in our relationship with God. And, and you cannot divorce the fury and like the, the holiness of God from like his love and his grace. Like those two things work hand in hand unlike ours. So, so a lot of people have a hard time with the God of the minor prophets of like, how can he do this? I don't like this part. I don't like the, my God is like this. That's what's great about the minor prophets. It teaches us who God is, not what we want him to be, right? So that's why we read all of scripture because it gives us a full view and full picture of who God is. But remember in the book of Exodus, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there, when the, when the whole mountain had filled, Mount Sinai? No. Yeah, whatever. At that mountain, it had filled with smoke, right? And God audibly spoke out of the hills. Like out of the mountain, out of the smoke, came God's voice. And the people begged Moses and said, Moses, please ask him to stop. We're terrified. I think we forget the fury and the power and the holiness of God sometimes. And so we have to set the, the stage in, this book, in the book of Hosea that God is furious. And, and for good reason. And for good reason. God is upset. But the outline of this book is, is really chapters 1 through 3 is a picture, right? That God's going to paint a picture with it. And then chapters 4 through 14 are the oracles of God. They're very opaque in, in what they are. It's like listening to Radiohead. At first, you're like, eh, I don't really get it. But the more you're, you know, you know what I mean? Those of you listen to the radio? <laughs> no? Just, I'm, Andrew J knows what I mean. There you go. Some of you, don't look at me all 
religious. Anyway, so, so if, you, if you look at it at first glance, you're like, what in the world? So, but as you give it time, you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. I love all the disco weird beats and stuff and the way it makes me feel inside. But <laughs> we will have a sentence for each of these books that help us to remember what these books are about and how they are each different and how they fit within the Bible. So Hosea, if you're taking notes, if you're writing any of these things down, if you're not, don't worry about it. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hosea is, uh, the theme of it is the prophet and the prostitute. And it is about Israel and God's mercy. That is what the book of Hosea is about. Hosea chapter 12, verse 10, it says this. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. That verse is telling us that God has, in time, used prophets to get the attention of his people. But not just in their words. God has called them to do some crazy and, and things that we would, if you were just to read this story... It is outrageous as a story on its own, but to think that this is what God had commanded, we wouldn't believe it. So, so what God says is here in this book, and to, to read it is, is kind of eye-opening. Um, God is saying in, in Hosea chapter 12 that he uses symbols and similitudes to speak to Israel and to show them what he meant. Now Hosea is going to serve as a similitude or a type or a like. Okay, and God's going to give them a very vivid picture of his relationship as the husband and um, as Israel as the wife, Gomer, as her name is. But here in verse 1, it gives us the time period uh, and what's happening and when this is all happening within the history of Israel. But in verse 2, it says, And the Lord began to speak by Hosea, and he said to him, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break a bow in Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Hosea is told by God to go and to marry a prostitute. And so he goes and he marries a woman named Gomer. Why? Like of all the ways that God could communicate, Right? Think about it. God spoke with a rainbow at one point. Like, I will never flood the earth again. It's a great message. Like, Daniel saw angels and, and you know, had a vision that way. And, uh, Isaiah, also, vision of God's throne room. Blew him away. Why this way? You know, why, why would God choose Hosea to do it this way? Because God... Is cool like that. You see, God wants to speak to his people, but not through words only, but painting for them a real-life example of what has been happening. And so Hosea obeys the Lord. He marries Gomer and has three children with her. I have four children. Their names are Luke, Molly, Silas, and Faye. Hosea's children are named Jezreel, means judgment is coming. Lo-Rahama, which means no mercy or no pity. And his third child is lo, named Lo-Ami, or not my people. So he has three kids that say judgment is coming, there is no mercy or no pity will be upon you, and you are not my people. And you would think that Israel would be like, those are interesting name choices. <laughs> right? 
Like all my kids' names have meaning. Like Luke means light, Molly means bitter, which is sad. Silas means like man of the forest, and Faye means uh, Faye. I don't even know. <laughs> but these names were specific to what God is trying to communicate to his people. This is God's prophet, and the message of God's prophet is judgment will come. There will be no mercy upon you. Like, None, because you know the right thing to do. And because you are no longer my people, like, no mercy will be upon you. You're no longer my people. There's a huge disconnect. It seems harsh, though, doesn't it? Seems different than, than Jesus on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, who, whoever wills, let him come. Seems a little different. And this is where people have a hard time of, like, the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. No, it is not. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. When God speaks, Jesus comes out. So the same righteousness and holiness that Jesus called to and calls his followers to is the same righteousness and holiness that God called his people to and they were not obeying him. They were not obeying him. They had the laws of God, the oracles of God. They had seen what God had done. Their history, it just it, it, it preached to who God was and they still disobeyed the covenant but it seems harsh but you have to understand the people have gone into extreme wickedness like extremes they have begun to worship the gods of sex riches and wine and they weren't just called that they're like i'm going to the temple of sex or i'm going to the temple of wine i'm going to the temple of of whatever they had these these statues and these idols that they worship baal being one of the major ones who is the god of of sex and the way that they worshiped was incredibly wicked. Often they would sacrifice their children to a god named Molech. They would heat up his little stone arms and they would place their children upon his arms and they would, they would sacrifice their children to these gods, okay? It's extreme depravity and wickedness. And so you can see why God, he tells them, I want you to see this picture here. He equates the relationship with them and, and uh, what they've gone into, he equates it to the sin of Adultery. As though a spouse who goes out on their spouse. And he says, this is why there will be no mercy. Like we've been, I, I'm, I'm your, like you know, we're, we're connected in this way. And, and what it teaches us about God is that God demands exclusivity. He demands exclusivity. God will not share his throne with any other God. Right? He said, you will serve the Lord your God and have no other gods before me. That's a big command. God demands exclusivity upon the throne of the heart of his followers. But it, with the, with it, it, within the warning and God's faithful chastening, he is making it difficult for them to get away as well. He equates their sin to adultery, and in chapter 2, God's gracious warning to them, like, you have to turn. You have to return to me. You, you have to. And, and if you don't, I'm going to put thorns along your path. Like, I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to block your way. I'm going to make it as difficult as I can for you to enjoy sin, right? I'm going to make it as, as hard as I can for you to get to what you, you think will bring satisfaction. He even says it over and over. You will, you will give in to sexual immorality, but you will not produce its fruit, meaning your wombs will be shut up. Like, no children. Like, there, there won't be that joy of children that comes from that. There will be no satisfaction from it. You will, you will thirst for it, and you will not find the quenching that you desire. 
And you're like, wow, that's harsh. No, that's God's love and his grace that says, this is not what I have for you. This brings and breeds about destruction. And in fact, that's often how we experience the judgment of God or or, or the judgment of sin in our own life is that God will give us over to what we desire and we experience the consequences, don't we? Oh, sin has consequences. Jonah experienced the consequences of his sin when he was thrown over this boat into a storm and swallowed by a giant fish. He experienced the consequences of sin, but he did not experience the full weight of those consequences because Jesus Christ would come. And the same is for us. We experience, guys, you experience. If you haven't yet, you will. The Bible says your sin will find you out. God loves you too much to let you keep going. His leash is a little longer than most, but man, he's going to snap you back at some point. Because God loves you. You will experience the consequences of your sin. If not now, someday, it won't just affect you. It will affect those around you. It does. The Bible says it. It's true. So God in his love disciplines and chases after us. That's what Hosea teaches us. In chapter two, if you look at, I think it's verse um, verse five, she, he says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. So she will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for when it was better for me than now, for she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil and multiple applied her silver and gold. God in his love for us chastens after us. The word is disciplines. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 it says for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens or chastises every son whom he receives. God's love can look a lot like a closed door and nothing going our way as we try and run from God. Romans tells us that God gave them up to sin in order for the consequences of sin to burn away the flesh that they might return to God. God will use even that, those instruments, as instruments of judgments in order that we would turn back to the Lord. But Hosea pursues her, right? God tells her, go after her. And so when he goes after her, he tries to turn her heart with gifts. He says he gave her grain, new wine, oil, and multiplied her silver and gold. Notice what she said, my lovers gave me bread, water, wool, where did those gifts come from? Did they come from? She, was, she had so many side guys, so many men on the side, that she didn't even know that those gifts came from her own husband. And what does she do with them? She goes and it says, um, which they prepared for Baal. She took the gifts from her own husband and she went and sacrificed them to her false god, to the false god of sex and wickedness. This is how far, the Lord is trying to convey something to the children of Israel. This is how far you've gone to where you no longer see that the gifts that God has given you of of produce, of water, of rain, of of children, of, of all these things, you've forgotten where they've come from. You've forgotten where they come from. Isn't that like our world today, that the common graces, listen, all of us experience common graces. Even, even those who do not believe in God experience common grace. 
right? The warmth of the sun and, and like just those, you know, a job, provision, food. Like these are common graces. God's long suffering. These are common things that we all experience. Although you may not be saved, you experience them just like everybody else. Gifts designed by God to show us, they're, they're God's gifts to show us and designed by God to draw us in. But here's what happens. We either worship the gift and think that we have received them by our own hand or um, we believe that by some universal cosmic force we've been blessed. Romans often talks about how men would take what was created by the creator and they would worship the creation rather than the creator. That they would give over to that. And, and it's just like our world today, God. There's a common grace that God extends to all of us, but yet we do not and people do not recognize where it comes from. It's from God. We think that it's by our own hand or by, by our own doing. Is it really hot in here? Okay. Just checking. There's nothing I can do about it other than open that door, but then this side will freeze and this side will still be sweating. Are you, is this side sweating? This side of my body is really sweaty. And then also this side. Let's just try it. Let's just, let's give it a shot. Maybe it's all the hell and judgment talk that's bringing it, making it warm in here or just your lovely faces, but, oh, bring it in, God. Fresh wind fall upon us. But look at this in chapter 2, verse 19. Okay, here's all of the like depravity and the hopelessness of like, you have gone into spiritual harlotry, now judgment will come. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 19. It says, But I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in the day that I will answer, says the Lord, and I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Did you catch that? Here is a glimpse of hope here. He says, if you will return to the covenant, return to Moses, return to the law of Moses, if you'll repent of your sin, restoration will come. Restoration is coming. He says to the, to the people that were not his people, right? He says, you shall be my people. To those who, who would have no mercy, he says, they shall obtain mercy. Why? Chapter 3, here's what I want you to see. For the third time, Hosea goes after her, right? He, he chases after her. And the Lord tells him to go and find her again. Um, he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committed adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looked to other gods and love raising cakes and of the pagans. Catch this right here. Verse 2 of chapter 3. So I bought her for myself were 15 shekels of silver and one half homer of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall have a man. So too will I be toward you. Did you catch that? They were betrothed in marriage. There was promises made. 
There was a relationship there. She goes out on him, and what does he have to do? He goes and buys her off a slave market. And he buys her for only 15 shekels. I mean, that's half of what it would cost to pay for a slave that had been gored by your own ox, like in the law. Leviticus, go ahead, read it when you want to. But, but it's like a deal. It, it's so cheap. Why? That, that's to tell you how far down Gomer had gone. And he says to Hosea, I want you to go and buy her back. Go get her. And I want you to pay the price for her. But look at this in verse, uh, verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. What is going on? What a picture of humanity. The God who makes us for relationship who makes us in his image, and we become his own, right? We are his possession. That relationship is broken by sin and the desire of our flesh and we might, that we might live in that, right? Jesus Christ paid the price for us, bought us off the slave market. Did Gomer deserve to be bought? Did, did Gomer deserve this chance again? Not necessarily. But God is painting a picture for his people of, look, he says, no matter what you do, I'm going to continue to chase after you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I will not, I will not forsake the covenant that I have made with you. He says, for one day, restoration will come. But did you catch where it's going to come from? Yes, that's right. You didn't say it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. David hasn't been king for like 250 years. So when it's speaking of David, it's not talking about David, like David's coming back and he's like, yeah, it's good to be king again. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the greater than David who would rule and reign forever, Jesus Christ, from the seed and the line of David. Psalm 2, verse 6, it says, but as for me, the Lord speaking, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. This is Isaiah 55 speaking again of this prophecy. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know and nations who you do not know. You shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Speaking of the restoration of Israel again. Now, in order for this to happen, remember, Israel is completely dispersed. They are, they, are, they are, I mean, all over. They're about to go into captivity and taken out of the land. And, and through that, you would think they would lose their identity and all that stuff. Listen, when's the last time you had lunch with an Amalekite? Probably never, because they have lost that identity. There are no Amalekites anymore. When's the last time you had lunch with a Roman? There is no Romans anymore. There's Italians, but there's no more Romans in that sense, right? Like, you're know, like, yeah, I'm Roman. I, that, 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 there is no, that's gone. That's gone. They've lost that identity. The Jewish people, 2,000 years, right? They were taken out of their land multiple times, dispersed all over the world. They have never lost their national identity, their customs, their language. They have held on to it. And in 1941, this 
has that near fulfillment when Israel became a nation again. This is fulfilled in that. But it also has a future fulfillment when Israel will not only have a reconciliation under the country and become a country again, but they will have a spiritual restoration in the last seven years called the tribulation. Well, they will have a spiritual awakening where they will recognize Jesus Christ as their savior. So not only is there a look backwards to the fulfillment of God, but a look forward to what is to come. Now, David, their king, and all that stuff, the latter days shows in the prophecies ultimate. Okay, so there, I covered that part. Now, chapters 4 through 14. It's only been 25 minutes. We're good. So here we go. Chapters 4 through 14 are the oracles of God. These chapters primarily deal with God calling out idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? Very good. Idolatry is, is I'm going to tell you, here's what it is. It's two things, just to sum it up. In our culture, we don't have idols necessarily unless you see the little, little cats and there's a little like, golden statue. And you will see that every once in a while. There's a lot of uh, new agey, zen, Christian Buddhism uh, uh, in Dana Point. Uh, in, in these areas, there's a lot of like uh, new agey influence in Buddhism and Buddhism and all of this stuff, right? But we don't actually have an idol that's 400 feet large of gold in the middle of Dana Point. And everyone's like, yeah, we should, that's what we worship. Okay, that, that doesn't necessarily exist. You go to other countries, you go outside of this world, you see a lot of it. Um, basically, many, yeah, other places. So what is idolatry? It's not just bowing down to some man-made thing. But idolatry is simply two things. It's changing God. Anytime you change God, that's idolatry. And the second one is leaving God's way for your own way. That is idolatry. It's simple. And here's the example, okay? Idolatry is changing God. It robs God of glory. Anytime you try and create something and say, this is what God looks like, you steal glory from God because you cannot make with your own two hands anything that comes close to the glory of God. Right? Can we all agree? Uh, I'm sure you're super artistic and God has gifted you and you know how to use all the right filters. I'm sure that you are God's gift to art. But guess what? Not even close. Not even going to get there. Nope. Not even, not even Ansel Adams, the black and white king, like is going to get there. Like all of the beautiful photos that we see of Yosemite or all the beautiful photos of Hawaii or whatever. Great. God is more. So, so anytime that you try and mold and shape something to say that this is what God looks like, it robs God of glory. That is idolatry. To rob God of glory, to change God is to rob God of glory and that is idolatry. Exodus 20 says... God said this very specifically, and here's why he said it. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am jealous. I am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. This was a command of God not to make an image of him. No matter how beautiful, no matter how well crafted, it is in no way comparable to the Lord God and it robs him of glory. Anytime that we say or we find a connection to God um, or, or that we paint a picture of God, that is not existent within scripture, that is idolatry. Like when we're going through Isaiah and we're like, well, I don't like the parts about the, the heaviness and the fury of God. If you don't like that and you want to change that, 
That's idolatry. Because you've created a false God. That's not who God is. So when someone says, the God that I like, it doesn't matter what you like, right? It doesn't matter the kind of God that you like. Because this is who he is. And to change it is to rob God of glory and therefore commit idolatry. And listen, God cannot be all the loving part of God that we love, the benevolence, the omnibenevolence of God that we love so much, it cannot exist apart from the justice of God. If God is not just, then he is not loving. Okay, so anytime someone says, well, I don't like that part, then you don't, you don't love the loving part either. Because to take that away is to rob God of glory and commit idolatry. That's a false God. God must exist with incomplete purity, holiness, righteousness, because that's what makes him God. And so he therefore cannot tolerate sin. But thank God he sent his son Jesus Christ to take the penalty of that sin. Where sin is not just passed over or looked over, sin is dealt with in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not only robbing God of glory in that way, it's leaving God's way for our own way. It's a refusal to obey the Lord is to obey self instead, declaring yourself to sit upon the throne and therefore falling into idolatry. Chapter 4 of Hosea, verse 12, it says, My people ask counsels from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. That is funny. That's funny. My people ask, (laughs) they ask their wooden idols, and their sticks talk to them. That's good. That's funny. Okay. So for the spirit of, of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. He says, my people ask counsel from wooden idols and and the sticks tell them what to do. This this is how far into idolatry they had gone. In chapter 6, it says this. This is a beautiful call to repentance, right? Again, God nails them on idolatry. Just this is where it's gone wrong. This is what's turned your heart against me. Because you worship these things, because you worship, worship something false, you're actually worshiping yourself and the desires of self. And you're like, man, we don't really see idolatry. We see it in Orange County every single day. We want to worship our authentic self. Do you know what that means? That the idol that I worship is my authentic self. That God is not the authority, that I am now the authority, right? Do you know what that is? It's idolatry. It's crazy. Human beings have acted like human beings since the beginning of human beings. We worship the creation rather than the creator. That is idolatry. We change God or we do things the way that we want instead of the way that God wants as the authority over our life. Chapter 6. This is a beautiful call to repentance in this. It's a clear spot in an otherwise muddled situation. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will rise us up. Hello. Where do you see that else? Uh, another place in Scripture. There you go. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. The end of verse 3, it says, he will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain and former rain of the earth. Man, he will wash us clean. 
if we will just return and repent, restoration will come. But in verse 6, it says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God says, what I want is mercy. What I want to pour out on you. Do you see how quick God is to pour out mercy and long-suffering? God is so long-suffering. Means long-suffering in a theological term, it means that he suffers long. Like it just it means that God is patient, God is kind, he waits, he warns. But he's calling them to recognize God's judgment through the consequences of our sin. He's extending his hand to save and to rescue, return and repent, and you can be restored, but they won't. Why won't they? The same reason why you won't and why I won't. It's this thing that we all have, it's called pride. Pride keeps us from it. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, your pride, my pride, will keep us from restoration with God. Chapter 8, if you look at chapter 8, verse 14, it says, for Israel has forgotten its maker and has built temples, and Judah also has multiplied fortified cities. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 18, it says, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and you have forgotten the God who fathered you. He says pride leads us to forgetting where the bread is coming from, where the rain is coming from, where our provision is coming from. And this is why I believe Jesus, when he was asked how we are to pray, he said, pray like this. Okay, stick with me. When his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Not pray this, pray like this. In the first prayer, or the first words of that prayer, he says, our Father who is in, in, who is in heaven, holy is your name. What is he calling them to remember? That God is in heaven, seated upon the throne, and you are not. The first thing that Jesus teaches us about prayer is that we come in humility to a God who is bigger and furious and full of power. That's, that's what Jesus come to him, not just as that furious, angry dad, but our father, our loving, caring God. But he sits upon the throne of heaven. He sits upon the throne of heaven. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Your way, God. I want your way, not my way. I, I want to be submitted to your way, God, whatever you desire. And he says this, give us this day our daily bread, right? Remember where your bread comes from. Remember where your provision comes from. It doesn't come from just the work of your own hands, although we are called to work hard. It's not coming from there. Where's it coming from? It's coming from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. What does it say next? And also, forgive our debtors. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. What was one of the names of the kids? No mercy. No mercy, no pity. What does God say? As you forgive, you will also be forgiven. Stay humble and stay merciful. Isn't that interesting? The Old Testament and the New Testament. Why would Jesus encourage us to pray like this? Because all of us have a propensity to be just like the book of Hosea. To be not like Hosea, but to be like Gomer. 
that we have idols that we worship and we run after, and suddenly we've gotten so far down, we don't even know where we are anymore. But this is where the hope comes in again, where God doesn't just leave us in that. And if it wasn't clear enough what God is trying to communicate, look at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like others' people, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. If it wasn't clear enough, what does he say? You are the woman. So, so all these chapters, God is painting this picture, and finally he says, if it's not clear enough, I just want to, I want to make it real clear that what, what she has done is exactly what you've done to me. And the pain that Hosea feels and the fury and the rage and the righteous indignation that he has is, is what I feel on a whole nother level. And, and God just calls, this is, this is who you are. But he doesn't leave them there. It reminds me of when Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba right? The, the, the one who the Messiah would come from had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered, no big deal, uh, to cover up his sin. Remember, Nathan comes to him and he tells him the story of, of a man who had many flocks, was very rich. And there was a poor man who had one lamb and he loved this lamb. He ate at his table with him. He treated him like his own kid. And the rich man came and took that man's lamb and he slaughtered it and fed it to his guests. And David stands up in a rage and says, that man will die. Like, where is he? And Nathan says to him, you are the man. And he sees, right? What did Nathan do? He used this picture with words, and he helps David to see his own sin for what it is. And suddenly David is cut to the heart when he finally sees it for what it is. And he says, I have sinned against the God of Israel. I've sinned. And he's heartbroken. And what does he do? He repents. He returns to the law. He repents of his sin. And God restores him. He loses that child with Bathsheba, right? He gets her pregnant. They lose that child. That child dies. But she gets pregnant again. And do you know who that kid was? Solomon. Who would bring about the Messiah. Who would build the temple. It's a, it's a story of God's redemptive power, of God's redeeming love in, in, in who he is. But and he returned, he repented, and through the end of the book, we see God's continued love for the nation of Israel. Chapter 11, it says, he says to them, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. He speaks of one of the tribes. He says, it was like a child that I grab by the hands and I'm teaching him how to walk, right? I've got to do that with all my little kids with their fat little wrists, right? And their fat little arms. And you're like teaching them how just the little steps and they're like doing the, the belly out thing and then the butt thing. And then I, but it's just, what do they think? They think, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. It's all me. But there's this giant, powerful, hairy man behind them. I'm just kidding. There's this giant person behind them holding all of the weight. And they're like, it's all me. And he says, that's exactly what it's like. He's like, I, I'm helping them to walk. I'm teaching them to walk. Why? Because God loves them. He loves them. He's not leaving them behind. He's not kicking them to the curb. He's holding them by their very arms. He says, they did not know that I was the one who healed them. 
who brought restoration. Chapter 12, it says, I have spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I've given symbols through witnesses and prophets. He says, this is a symbol and a sign of my love to you that I've sent men to tell you to turn back to me. I've sent people into your life to tell you, turn back to the Lord. I've, I've sent prophets to marry a prostitute for crying out loud to try and get your attention. Jeremiah's going to preach naked or whatever in a little while and like shave half his body. Like it's going to get weird. Why? Because Jesus and God want us to know to come back to him. It was a symbol and a sign of his love, he says. In chapter 14, look what it says. We're moving really fast. Chapter 14, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, right? We go through this whole book and you're thinking, man, there's no way. Like here comes the final judgment. God's just gonna be like, I'm done, light them up. <laughs> light it on fire. You know, like we're done here. But that's not what it is. Chapter 14 is this last cry of repentance and returning to the Lord. O Israel, return to your God. But notice what he says in verse 2. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. What an interesting passage. Take words with you. In returning to the Lord, Israel must come on God's terms. Right? He doesn't just, you know, come, come ex and keep all this stuff, keep all the idols and just, you know, come. And we'll, you know, it's fine. No, you got to come on God's terms, right? You got to lay that stuff aside. That's why the, the Bible tells us that the road, the, the road to, the, to, to heaven is a narrow road and the road of destruction is broad. Do you know why it's a narrow road? Because all your junk can't fit on it. You got to let it go. It doesn't fit on the narrow path. You got to drop it. You got to lay it down. You got to let go, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't fit. So in returning to God, they have to come on his terms. When you return to me, he says, take words with you. I want you to return to me not with a silent feeling in your heart, but with proper words of repentance and trust in me. When we come before the Lord, it is essential to take words with you. There's a place for sharing and articulating the feelings of the heart with God. But that is not the essence of fellowship and worship with him. The worship of God is intelligent. God made us to be able to communicate ideas and feelings with words. It isn't enough to sit before the Lord and feel love toward him. Instead, take words with you. Tell God what you that you love him. It isn't enough to feel repentance before the Lord. Instead, take words with you and tell God you repent before him. It's this call to repentance, but in, in God's way, in God's terms. Not just to feel repentance, but to say it. Take words with you. Interesting. And we'll leave you with this. In verse 4, it says, I will, hear their back, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew of Israel, and he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. Speaking of what will come. But Charles Spurgeon, he said this. The whole book of Hosea is like a great trial wherein witnesses have appeared against the accused and the arguments and excuses of the guilty have been answered and baffled. All has been heard for them and much, very much against them 
and the convicted stand at the bar to hear their sentence. Behold, the judge, instead of putting on a black cap to pronounce doom of death, stretches out his hand to the condemned and in tones of pity cries, O Israel, return. What a wonderful story. Do you see why it's in the Bible now? Because all of us have a propensity to this. And God doesn't hammer you with guilt. God doesn't try and manipulate you. He simply says, return, repent, and restoration will come. Because Christ paid the price and the Messiah is here. And whatever mess that you've made, the Messiah can come into. So let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. And, and Lord, I do thank you for this book. I do thank you for the honesty of it. Lord, I do thank you for the way in which you communicate to us that is... Um, for some of us, it might be graphic. But Lord, help us to see our sin for what it is. Lord, sin is something that you call in your word is something that is deadly. And it's not just deadly to our, our physical body, Lord. It's, it is deadly to our very soul. And so, Lord, we want to be those that repent of our sin. Because, Lord, on this side of the cross, we have something so wonderful. <clears throat> Scripture records for us the, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It records for us that our sins, although they were black, Lord, you make us white as snow by faith. That you can take away those sins. You died for those sins. And so, Lord, if any of us tonight are just in this place of, of maybe like a wishy-washy kind of relationship with you, where there's certain things that we really enjoy about walking with the Lord, but there's certain ways in which we've changed you. Lord, we thank you that this book reminds us that you're a God of holiness and righteousness and that you demand exclusivity. And so, Lord, if there's anything in, on the throne of our heart where you belong, we pray, God, that you would tear it down it and again take your rightful place upon our heart. We love you. Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray.